0: Specific to parents raising twins, triplets, and more. Learn more, subscribe to the show, or connect with Paul at tamacapital.com.
1: This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of TAMA may retain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast.
2: What do you think of first when you hear the term behavioral science? It is a topic that I research and read about constantly as it sits at the precipice of my work with families. Behavioral science, to me, is a toolbox that I use to help families be healthier, happier, and wealthier. There is no better person to talk about this topic than a behavioral researcher. Allison White is just that person. Allison works for Dan Ariely at the Common Sense Lab. Where she leverages behavioral science to conduct product research that aims to improve individuals' financial decision making. Her work sits at the intersection of design research and behavioral science that help drive behavioral changes. Throughout our conversation, Allison and I ta- tackle topics that tend to hinder families and individuals' financial decisions and growth. Our ability to think about making trade offs amidst resource scarcity. Whether time or money. We talk about how we can make good decisions for our present self and future self. Most people want to be re- financially responsible, but we can easily fall into an intention gap where our actions do not support the values we want to achieve. Allison identifies some strategies on how we can overcome this gap. Please enjoy my conversation with Allison White. So, Allison White, welcome to the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.
1: Thanks for having me. Excited to be here.
2: Yeah, well, I know we've been uh, uh, emailing back and forth for several weeks trying to get this scheduled. So, I'm actually glad that we did and uh, been looking forward to this conversation for a while. So, I think the, the best place to start is to have you explain to our audience a little bit about you and your background and how you came into the field of behavioral science. And actually, if you could explain what that means, like what does behavioral science mean? I read a lot about this, so I'm a little bit well well versed, but um, I know probably members of our, our audience may not be.
1: Yeah, so I came into the field kind of by accident. It's fairly common to enter this field by getting a PhD in psychology or a master's in decision sciences or one of these things. Um, I actually um, just, but before coming into the field of behavioral science, I was working at Deloitte and I was a user experience designer. So um, making the tools we use, you know, seamless and intuitive to use. And I just happened to have a friend who ran the behavioral economics interest group at Deloitte and connected me with some folks um, when I moved to Durham, North Carolina, who worked in Dan Ariely's lab. And it seemed interesting and they were interested in my skill set as I'm kind of rounding off some of the team's skill sets. And so I've really just learned, you know, how to design for behavior change by being here at the lab and working with Dan Ariely. So I now work at our lab is called the Center for Advanced Hindsight. And it is named after um, essentially a bias with how we make decisions called hindsight bias, um, which essentially boils down to, it's really easy to predict the future after it's already happened, right? So in hindsight, it's really easy to you know, see markets change or this or that. Um, and so that's kind of a, a little teaser on what the field of behavioral science is. And that is, you know, a a subset of it that I kind of work more closely and it's called behavioral economics and is essentially just saying, hey, humans have all of these kind of cognitive biases that really affect the way we go about making decisions. And if we become more aware of them and we design for them, it's easier to kind of change our behavior for the better.
2: And for those that don't know, Dan Ariely, he, who started the center, um, mm-hmm. he's written a lot of great books on this, and, and I'll link to some of those in the show notes. Were you aware of Dan's work before, like the when you were at Deloitte, were you aware of Dan's work when you were there? I never I was. Deloitte he had yeah. something like that. <laughs> I always think of Deloitte as like accounting, tax, things like that, yeah, not... Yeah. So I was
1: in the consulting branch, and so they were kind of just starting to um, really grow a practice around trying to help um, federal agencies, actually, um, with kind of their strategy really rooted in behavioral science. So I um, did know about Dan beforehand. I studied marketing in undergrad, and um, his book, Predictably Irrational, which is kind of the most popular one, was assigned in my Consumer behavior class, so and and I think that's kind of a fairly, yeah, common one to have heard of. So I had read this book and was kind of that was my earlier introduction to the field, such that I kind of knew what my friend was doing at Deloitte. But um, yeah, it was you know I've learned a lot more than is in that book since <laughs> since coming to work in the lab.
2: And how many people actually work in the lab? And and another kind of question along that is like, how do you guys get funding for that?
1: Yeah. So we are funded by, um, primarily grants. Um, I will speak specifically to the piece of the lab I'm in. So I think the lab as a whole is maybe 30 to 35 people. Um, we have a health, a government and a finance team. I'm on the finance team. Um, and so, we do some um, engagements with sponsors. So, um, you know, the sponsors kind of pay the lab directly and we um, help them with um, whatever challenges they're trying to solve. And then primarily our funding comes from um, grants. So, our the, the finance group has this kind of sub-lab called the Common Sense Lab, um, where sense is spelled like dollars and cents, And we're Funded by uh, the MetLife Foundation and the BlackRock Emergency Savings Initiative is, is where a lot of our funding comes from.
2: Okay, so one of the, the pieces that I came about or came across that you had written um, was an article about slowing people down when it came mm-hmm. to making financial decisions. So I want to read a, a quote that I pulled out. You you wrote meaningful choices include which goals to pursue and broadly which methods to use to pursue them. Are we really creating a seamless user experience by helping users put off an important decision until later? One of the things that that I've it's been a constant struggle um, in the field of well planning or financial planning is getting people to really engage and to care about their finances just as much as I do. Can you begin to like walk us through some of the work that you've done that that gets people to Engage more from a, and, and when I say engage, what I probably really mean is care about their financial situation.
1: Yeah. So I think there's a few things going on here. Um, and one of the pieces at play, there's this behavioral principle called the ostrich effect, which is, you know, named after the bird. And um, it's essentially the idea of like an ostrich putting their head in the sand, where like when we think things might not be looking good or there's bad news. like we tend to want to ignore it. And so um, I think sometimes it can be tough to um, just approach um, working on our finances because it's just overwhelming and we're not sure kind of you know what we're gonna find when we try to organize things we think everything might not work out. And so I think that's one piece of it. but there's also, you know, behavioral economics as a field is really built on this idea of what we call the intention action gap. And so we would say, you know, people, you know, in in in-depth interviews we've done and surveys we've run, people do want to be, you know, saving for emergencies, saving for retirements, paying down their debt. They have that intention. um, But there's just all of these kind of things standing in the way, both about kind of how our brains work and about how the decision making environment is structured that can make it really hard to follow through with action um, on those intentions.
2: Can, can you expand on that a little bit? So if, if people want to save and be financially responsible, and and I I get it, like one of the things I talk a lot about is, especially families, is that we have all these financial and lifestyle priorities pulling at us that, you know, to take the time to sit down to really think about putting together a financial plan isn't on the top of most people's minds?
1: Yeah. So the way that we often try to approach it in behavioral science is we kind of narrow things down to what is the actual behavior that we want people to exhibit, right? And so um, it can be tough to say, like, we just want them to be more financially healthy because that's kind of an outcome, right? That's not really, um, it's not really like one behavior that we can really design around. And so we kind of break things down to be really kind of uncomfortably specific and actionable. And um, so we would say, you know, how can we design financial products to get people to, you know, save X percent of each paycheck or, you know, whatever it is. And then um, we essentially analyze kind of the steps that someone would go through if they were to actually exhibit that behavior. And we say, okay, at each of these steps, what's getting in the way, right? What is keeping them from, um, you know, moving forward, um, making the kind of decision to, um, to actually move money over to savings or set up some sort of automatic transfer. And sometimes it's actually, you know, they don't have the means, right? And so it's how can we kind of reframe? How can we help them find maybe windfalls, um, gifts, tax returns, credit card rewards that they could be moving over into savings um, if it feels like it can't come out of their paycheck. And so, yeah, a lot of it is just what barriers are at play in getting someone to exhibit a specific behavior. And then how can we either remove those barriers or use what we know about um, psychology to infuse extra motivation into kind of the steps leading up to something. And I think the thing about a financial plan is it is holistic, which is great, but there's all of these, you know, behaviors then kind of embedded in a financial plan. And what we need to figure out then is, you know, how can we... um, how can we kind of set up people's um, financial products and um, decision-making environments to be able to follow through on that financial plan, right? So if it's in the plan to save, can we make it automatic or can we kind of, you know, bundle savings with you move money over to savings every time you walk 10,000 steps or whatever it is, you know, how can we embed this into people? People's lives, so that we're not relying on them to remember, to consistently set aside all this time to kind of take these steps and follow through.
2: So, I think what 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 you're onto there is what I would refer to as as nudges, and I'm sure you're familiar with Richard Thaler's work because that's one of his popular yeah. ideas. Are these nudges? Is that am I on the right track there?
1: Yeah. So the idea of a nudge is. Really, just trying to encourage a certain behavior in a way that people wouldn't even necessarily recognize that you're doing so, right? The idea of like, um, I know at Google, for example, when they were trying to get people to eat healthier snacks, they just moved all of the candy into um, bins that were not at eye level and that were opaque. And people just like ate significantly less candy, right? So that would be an example where like, Going in the cafeteria, you don't necessarily think like someone's trying to get me to eat less candy. You just like see the fruit sitting out on the counter, and the candy's harder to get to, so you like grab an apple, right? And so, that's kind of the idea of a nudge. And so sometimes um, we leverage behavioral science to kind of design a decision-making environment in a way that um, really just kind of motivates that healthiest choice and there's a lot of flack for like, Oh, this is manipulative. This is, you know, you're changing people's decisions, but ultimately like decision-making environments don't really start out as a blank slate or like a net neutral. And then we come in and we encourage a certain decision. It's like often some, you know, um, like engineer or business owner, whoever it is has structured this environment a certain way. And, maybe just uh, made it easier to make a certain decision unintentionally. And we come in and just say, let's be intentional about trying to make it easiest to make the healthiest decision in this case.
2: One of the, one of the things that I've found in being an advisor for, I guess over 20 years now is there's when people finally show up at my doorstep, if you will, or call it's, They've experienced some kind of life transition, um, whether loss of a job, marriage, baby, um, you know there's some trigger that finally made them pick up the phone because they're, in order to get to that point, there was a lot of trepidation like it, going back to like the, the ostrich effect, like people just put their head in the sand even though they know they should be doing something, but they, they choose not to because they're really afraid. Of what they're going to find out, and I am extremely empathetic when when I'm working with new, mainly families that that come to me because I know how much effort it took just to take that first step to pick up the phone to call. So along those lines, do you I wish I could find a way to get to, to reach those people sooner versus having something happen to them to then have them call me. Does your work get into anything like that to be more proactive from a design experiment or like how to to more effectively reach people? Because I know people don't want to be preached at when it comes to financial planning or savings or anything like that. When you, I'm sure your research has probably shown when you do that, you turn people off. So how do we turn people on?
1: Yeah. So one of the things that we really try to do is encourage the organizations we work with to provide kind of what we'd call just-in-time financial education. So I think there's a big difference between, oh, you know, I'm going to go attend this hour-long class and learn all about credit scores and saving for retirement and all of these things. Um, And then, you know, by the time you're actually trying to follow through on it or make a decision or whatever it is, like, it's hard for that to translate into actual behavior change sometimes. Um, And so we really encourage, you know, can we kind of prompt people with relevant information in the moment that they are the most receptive to it? And so a helpful example of this is I was checking my score on Credit Karma the other day. And so they show me my score and then kind of right underneath, they have this little, um, you know, box there that says, hey, here's a score hack. Here's a little tidbit on how to improve your score. You know, you could pay off some of this card earlier to lower your credit utilization. And then you can click like learn more if you want to learn a lot more about why that happens. But, you know, in that example, I've already kind of, logged on to Credit Karma, I was looking at my score and they're saying like, hey, this is something you care about right now. And so we're going to kind of teach you about, you know, credit card utilization right in this moment when you're receptive to kind of learning about it and acting on it. And, you know, in as much as we can do things like that, try to, you know, try to embed into the kind of products and services that people are already using every day um, kind of little tidbits to encourage them to um, kind of teach them in the moment, Hey, here's something that matters. Here's, you know, why you should think about making a decision a little bit differently Um, that tends to drive behavior change a little bit more. And so I think you know when you're saying often it takes a crisis for somebody to kind of come and talk to you and get a financial plan. That actually does <clears throat> kind of line up with behavioral science a little bit. We see um, we see this you know effect where basically these kind of moments of transition are when people are often most receptive to forming new habits and it's called a fresh start effect and we have a name for everything in behavioral science, but (laughs) you know, it's, it's basically like why make new year's resolutions, right? Like, not that much has changed from December 31st to January 1st, but for some reason we're like, this is the time that I'm going to finally go to the gym every day or, you know, read, you know, that classic work of literature that I've always meant to be able to say that I've read or whatever it is, you know? And so I think, you know, moments of, you know, family crisis are moments where we're really trying to figure things out and we kind of by force have to make some new habits. And so I think, you know, there's, we're probably not going to get to a place where, you know, all the products and services are designed so seamlessly that when someone has a crisis, they don't want to kind of still go talk to someone and work through these things. But hopefully, you know, People can start to make some better decisions um, if we really design products and services to encourage them to um, kind of pay attention to, um, you know, some of these decisions earlier on. <clears throat> so, and I when, think,
0: oh, go ahead. Oh,
1: I was I was just reminded in this. There's a story in Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit about kind of this thing exactly, where he talks about how. Target figured out that like the moment someone has their first baby is like a huge, um, you know, opportunity for change in habits. And if they can kind of, you know, and I know you've been in this place when you had your (laughs) first, you had three. So um, I'm sure, you know, they're, they're talking in this book about how you know, suddenly you need diapers. And if you go to Target for diapers, you're going to think, oh, we also need all these groceries. And then suddenly you're just, you know, shopping at Target for everything. And so they like really try to, you know, push coupons and like grab people at this moment of, of transition. And, you know, they're doing that, you know, not necessarily to say make the healthier decision. They're saying, sh- you know, shop at Target, whether that's healthier or not. Right. But uh, there's opportunities to to kind of do that in other ways, right? To say, "Hey, you're having a huge moment of transition. You just had a baby. Things are crazy. Like how can we make, take you know, not take advantage, but how can we really like leverage this new season in your life to form some new habits that set you up for success?"
2: It's, it's ironic that you mentioned Target because they just reported earnings and they just blew them out of the water this week. So a lot of people are shopping at Target for sure. Um, so I know we, we kind of talked about this, but one of your areas of focus is financial education and financial coaching. You know, and I was listening to Myra Sum, Summers, I think that's how you pronounce her last name. She wrote a book, uh, um, how, to, how to Get Things to Stick, How to Get Lessons to Stick do you have have you worked in in specifically with with helping get financial lessons to stick from you know the the work that you've done
1: so yeah that's a difficult question <clears throat> i think you know we have seen this difference in the effectiveness of financial education versus financial coaching in the common sense lab where financial coaching tends to be a lot more effective right you're working one on one with a coach there's this kind of accountability element often they're kind of they might be building you up building your self efficacy um and so you know we we do really promote financial coaching but i think in terms of like getting lessons to stick it's just yeah it's a lot of these things I've already talked about, I think in as much as we can encourage people to take a certain behavior and then kind of even help them set it up in a financial coaching session. Like there's, we find that some of the most effective ways to encourage people to save are like just making it automatic, like set it and forget it. Right. And so in that sense, it's not even like, you know, every day I wake up and think I should save today. And that lesson is sticking. It's just a sense of like, in this moment, you know, when I was either with my financial coach or maybe prompted by something or, um, you know, had a life transition and was looking to go make a change. Maybe I, you know, set up some sort of automatic deposit to savings or roundups or whatever it is. And then now I'm a saver, right? And so I think in terms of this, like, Getting lessons to stick, it's it's really about that intention-action gap we were talking about earlier, right? And one way that we try to overcome that is through something called pre-commitment. And I think the kind of image people often have in their head of this is when, you know, before... Pay and digital payment, and it was way too easy. People would like freeze their credit cards if they didn't want to spend any more on their credit card, right? And it's that right. idea of like tying your hands in advance to try to follow through on a decision. And so, again, for the lessons sticking, often it's not you know I forgot that I want to save. It's just um, you know difficult to follow through on the decisions that we're trying to make um, that benefit us in the future when we want to make you know it's this trade-off of future versus present benefits often, right? That you've had a long day at work. Like you don't want to use the groceries in the fridge to cook dinner. You want to like go get a pizza. Right. And like, maybe that's okay, but it's just this question of like, those things can, can add up. Right. So one piece is pre-commitment. How can you um, kind of set up obstructions to stand in the way of um? You know, the behaviors you don't want to take are making it easier to follow through on your commitment. Um, even like you know, the there's an app called Stick that I think allows you to like wager money if you're trying to like form some new habit. Like if you're trying to lose weight, you can say, if I don't lose this much weight and this amount of time, you know, I have to pay this much. And, you know, if people like don't actually have that much discretionary income to then pay, like they're way more motivated they're to like, w- lose weight, right? It's this like um, kind of thing that they're setting up ahead of time to follow through. So that's, I think, you know, what we would encourage. And then there's also this sense of Psychological needs, right? If we just say, like, okay, I'm, you know, never going to, you know, treat my family to pizza again. I'm going to put it all into savings because, you know, we really need to save for college. Like, at the end of the day, like, parents still want to treat their kids to things, right? They want to, like, they want to have a nice surprise or, like, just fun time every once in a while. And that's, Good, right? Life's not all about just setting ourselves up for happiness in the future. It's also about the now. And so there's this sense of, you know, if we are, you know, if making lessons stick means trying to have people kind of um, reel back in on behaviors that are more expensive in order to kind of move money around, then we can't just say, stop doing that. We need to say, okay, what is the underlying kind of need that that behavior is filling? And can we get more creative about how we fill that need, right? Like, you know, instead of going out to drinks on a Friday on payday to kind of blow off steam, is there another way? Can we like buy a bottle of wine at the grocery store and invite friends over or something like that, right? Because there's, we're not going to just like no longer be tired on friday afternoons and feel like celebrating the end of the week right
2: <laughs> yeah that well what you actually what you're what you're talking about kind of aligns to what i was going i wanted to ask next is because one of the things i've become really interested in is spending obviously we've talked a lot about savings but I have this phrase that I always use with my clients and my wife Teresa she gets sick of me saying it but I have this phrase that the checkbook doesn't lie show me where you're spending money and I'll show you what you value and I think one of the aspects that we fall short of or, or struggle with when it comes to our financial situations is really understanding what what we value and how we spend on that, and, and, and kind of to phrase it a different way, is we. It's easy to tell somebody how to save, but it's, it's not necessarily as easy to tell somebody how to spend. But I think what you just lined up, or your example was was perfect, where you know if if you want to blow off steam at the end of the week, rather than you know going out to the bar or restaurant, you know grab a six pack or a bottle of wine or whatever, and. You know, invite your friends over. Fortunately, in my right around the corner, of my office is an Irish pub, so that gets that gets a lot of play <laughs> <laughs> during meeting, financial meetings sometimes. But do you have you has your work taking you into that that specialization with with working with people or trying to get people to focus on what they're spending?
1: Yeah. So we actually did some research with the app Capital with the Q where we were trying to essentially figure out which purchases people regretted versus didn't regret. And so we kind of surfaced recent purchases for, I think it was targeted to millennials specifically, um, but purchases that made over the last month and then essentially asked them to kind of rank how much they regretted these purchases. And so, you know, they typically regretted purchases less that were necessary for living, right? Things like rent and healthcare and groceries. Like it's hard to regret those. You kind of need to have shelter and food and all of that. But then there was kind of this, you know, other realm of much more discretionary purchases. So bar purchases, digital subscriptions, convenience stores, coffee shop expenses, fast food that tended to be kind of, Least satisfying after the fact. And so there's I think this kind of you know, again, it's how we make decisions in the moment versus how we kind of envision ourselves, our perfect version of ourselves making decisions. And that's why I was talking a lot about pre-commitment is it's this idea that in the future we're always our perfect selves, right? We're never too tired to go to the gym in the morning. we're we're never gonna, you know, suddenly splurge and buy the $7 latte at Starbucks or whatever it is. And then when we kind of look back on those things, it's much easier to kind of actually judge like, Hey, was that, you know, as satisfying as I thought it was going to be. And so I think that's one thing people can do is kind of start to just do an audit of how they're spending money and say, you know, maybe, maybe that is kind of one of your great joys in life is to buy that, you know, Coffee drink a few times a week, and so then we're not saying you know you definitely shouldn't do that, but what what I'm trying to get at is is the way that we're spending money actually kind of bringing the satisfaction that we think it's going to bring, and if there's a mismatch there, how can we kind of reframe how we're spending money? Um, some really interesting research around this is um, a professor named Ashley Willens who's at Harvard Business School and. She is this paper that talks about how using money to buy time can actually promote happiness. And so in behavioral science, we talk about different kinds of scarcity when it comes to resources. One is actual money and another can be time scarcity, right? That some people are just so busy that what actually brings happiness is hiring a house cleaner to free up more time for leisure if they have any real time for leisure. And so that would be an example of, you know, it's not necessarily like, you know, cinching in your waist belt when it comes to spending and try to spend as little as possible, but trying to align spending with what's actually going to bring you the most kind of happiness and satisfaction. And sometimes for some people that could be, you know, outsourcing certain tasks and buying more time.
2: And so that actually, actually leads into one of the other big topics I wanted to talk to you about was how to think about making trade-offs amidst, amidst you know resource scarcity. And what what I really mean by that, I talk about trade-offs, it seems like all the time. And I use this example with, with families I work with that everybody has a pie. You think of a pie and you slice that pie and however many different slices you want, as far as, you know, saving for retirement or education, lifestyle, special vacations. And what I tell people often is like, everybody has their own pie and their pie is only so big. You could be a multimillionaire or you can make, you know, $50,000 a year. Everybody's pie is, and to certain degrees, fixed. And Part of how I see my role as an advisor is helping them to understand how to really optimize their pie by focusing on the priorities that are going to help get them to where they want to go, both from a not just from a financial standpoint, but really from a personal standpoint as well. And so if you want that. I'll use Disney because I just spent a wonderful magical week there last week with my with my family of, of six. Um, if you if you want to, if you want to save up for that that Disney trip once a year or once every couple of years, then you're gonna to have to give up something else. So what it's what else is that that's something that you're willing to give up? And to to try to get people to see that you know there's there's trade-offs. So from from that angle, is there anything else that you could you know, provide us, Allison, on how to make better trade-offs or how to think of trade-offs in better terms, if you will?
1: Yeah. So, the work that we do in that space often just involves helping people broaden their minds about and get more creative about what those trade-offs could look like. Um, there's a paper and I'm definitely going to get the car brands wrong, but where we're getting at the idea of opportunity costs, right? The idea of if you are going to do this thing, then you have to give up this other thing. Or if you're going to spend this $20 on this one thing, what are all the other possible things you could have spent it on? And there was a study around this where basically people who were going to buy I don't know, maybe a Toyota SUV or something were asked, you know, Hey, if you weren't going to buy this car, you know, what else might you spend this money on? And people were like a Honda, right? Like, Like that was the, like, there wasn't this, like, you know, I could actually buy like a used car or take public transit and like go on a nice vacation with my family. And, you know, and, you know not everybody is you know in a position to take public transit or or whatever it is but it was just kind of the principle of like people were like oh if i didn't buy this car what else what what's the opportunity cost oh buying a car from another you know make right yeah. <laughs> and and so there's work that we do around this idea of mental accounting which is the idea that people think about money differently based on where it's come from and where it's going and An example of this is if you are given a $20 Starbucks gift card for Christmas, you might buy that like crazy $7 drink with all the extra shots and the whipped cream and the caramel drizzle. But if you're like spending your own money, you might get like a $2 drip coffee, right? Because you're like, oh, this is, you know, this is this gift. Like, I don't have to worry about feeling irresponsible with it. And so, you know, people tend to, spend their paychecks a lot more responsibly because they see, oh, I've worked for this. This goes towards kind of bills and regular expenses. And so sometimes it's just being creative about, you know, what pieces of that pie have you maybe forgotten about, right? Like tax refunds or, um, you know, gifts that you might kind of, set aside and not think about? And then what have you already, what kind of categories have you already created in your head that might essentially be treating money as if it's not fungible when it is, right? The idea of like money instead of bartering is like a dollar is supposed to be a dollar, right? We're supposed to, you're supposed to, you know, be able to kind of make these easy trade-offs, but we've kind of set up all of these things in our head as like, oh, well, this is my, you know, fun money, or this is my, you know, <clears throat> gift money or or whatever it is. And so kind of stepping in and saying, you know, helping people reframe, yes, the pie is only so big, but what might you have forgotten about? Or what are the assumptions about things that have to be the way they are that, you know, maybe we could... Um, of reframe how we're mentally accounting for that money. And we did a really great experiment around this with Virginia Credit Union in Richmond, where we were trying to do exactly this. We were trying to get people to reframe their credit card rewards as an opportunity to build savings. And that's an example where we just changed the decision-making environment, like the credit card rewards portal, and just tried to make it a little bit easier for people to redeem into savings by making it the default option and they could just as easily in like two clicks redeem it to their statement credit or to their checking account but just making it really easy for people and kind of the default show them like hey like maybe you could put it into savings maybe that's something you hadn't thought about before and it like doubled the number of people who made a redemption to savings over a three-month period
2: so I know that I only have you for a finite period of time, and, and I haven't brought this up that yet, but you are, you are actually a new mom, so you have a six-month-old, oh, and she has yes. been a champ because we have, I have not heard her throughout this entire conversation. I know you were, <laughs> you were nervous about it. So let me, let me jump to, to my closing question that I, that I ask all of my guests, um, and I'm really interested in your take since you're, you're a new mom, is what is the best thing about being a parent?
1: It just teaches you not to take simple joys for granted. And I think, you know, right now we're in this stage where we're just getting to watch her learn to interact with the world and try to move her body in space. You know, she learned to sit up a few weeks ago and now she can interact with, you know, other babies and children totally differently than before. So it just puts a whole new lens on and things that we take for granted every day, like being able to hold ourselves up, right? <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, Allison, I can't thank you enough for being on on the on the emotional balance sheet podcast. And and I, there were still questions I didn't get to, so um, I'm sure that this will be the the first of many conversations to come. So I can't thank you enough.
1: Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It was great to be here.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast. Please visit TamaCapital.com to subscribe to this podcast or to connect with certified financial planner and registered investment advisor, Paul Fenner of Tama Capital. And please join us again next time on the Emotional Balance Sheet Podcast.